Welcome to the Inside JMS podcast, where we tell the stories of the faculty and staff of the Hank Greenspun School of Journalism and Media Studies. I'm Kevin Stoker. I'm the director of the school. I'm here with Dave Norris. Great to be here, Kevin, as always. He's an assistant professor in residence here. We have Stephen Bates with us today. Stephen is a full professor who basically is an expert in First Amendment law, but Really, most interesting is uh, the recent work he's been doing on the Hutchins Commission. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, Stephen, first of all, you know, we can get in and talking about your research and your, the current book you're working on, but I kind of want to hear a little bit about your background. How did you end up going into law, going to law school? How did you end up getting into this field and uh, actually, and then let's talk about that great career you've had so far. Okay. Um, I went to uh, college, graduated from college, uh, didn't have anything to do to make any money. Uh, so I decided to go to law school, which solved the problem of having not enough money by going deeply into debt. Uh, <laughs> in, uh, in law school, I studied First Amendment law um, uh, sort of intensively. And uh, when I got out, I uh, I had already co-written a book with Edwin Diamond about political advertising. And then I wrote a collection of anecdotes about journalism called If No News, Send Rumors. Um, and then I puttered around D.C. and had uh, government jobs, but finally ended up as a journalist, as a, a literary editor of the Wilson Quarterly in D.C., which is a was a federal uh, federally run a quarterly magazine associated with the Smithsonian Institution. And from there, I got a, a job offer to come here and uh, was happy to do so in 2006. Well, tell me, so in your undergraduate, were you into journalism as an undergrad? Now, I know you went to Harvard, so tell me about that. Uh, were you writing at that time? Because Harvard didn't necessarily have a journalism program. So you, what was your major? Uh, I majored in government, which is what they call political science. Uh, there is no journalism major there. Um, Agnes uh, Neiman gave them a lot of money in the 1940s to promote journalism, and they decided they didn't want to have a journalism school. So they created a fellowship for mid-career journalists instead. But I just studied a lot of uh, political science. I took a year off in the middle to uh, work in politics. I was the press secretary for Massachusetts for the first George Bush, George H.W. Bush, during his uh, primary campaign against Ronald Reagan back in 1980. Wow, wow. So. Where are you from originally? I grew up in West Texas, a town called Pecos, but I was That's born right. in San Luis Obispo, California. And and so you went to high school there in West Texas. Now, West Texas, being very familiar with West Texas, um, that, and then to go from West Texas to Harvard, how did that happen? Uh, I was thrilled. <laughs> 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 best best passage I ever went through. Uh, I went from a town that was about 100 miles from a bookstore to uh, living across the street from a bookstore that was open till 11 p.m. every night. Uh, so it was, uh, it was terrific. So as a kid, if I'm going to describe you how you were as a young man, were you a bookworm? Is that, you know, what, and what books were that excited you? What was it that really kind of got you you know, if there was anything that really inspired you, what, what, what was it? 
It was journalism, really. I, um, in high school, got a job with the local five-day-a-week newspaper and did that during summers as well as after school. And then at one point, uh, got a job as news director of the local radio station, which was a podunk little station. Uh, so I had a media empire. <laughs> and, uh, and, but books, was there anything in, it was, it was journalism then, did you read a lot of books then? And every, I mean, how did you prepare to become a journalist? Just write? Uh, just write and just have editors tell me I was doing it wrong and, and try, to, try to do it better. Um, yeah, yeah, it really was college before I did a whole lot of uh, reading of any sort. Was it, was it hard? I mean, you kind of give, you kind of give the impression that, that you were ready to leave, but was it hard to go away, all the way across the country to Boston to go to school? No, it was a cinch. <laughs> I, was, I was delighted to get out of Texas. <laughs> so, so tell me about, so you get to Harvard, and you're a kid from a West Texas, small West Texas town, a place where you see your dog running away for the next three days. Um, and you get to Boston where they have all these bookstores and it's trees and all these things. Um, it had to be a bit of a culture shock. It gave me a lot of options I hadn't had before, including bookstores, including movie theaters. There were fabulous uh, old movie theaters there then. And the first semester, I saw five movies a week. Uh, the Harvard Square Theater had a new, a different double feature every day, seven days a week of Casablanca and old classic movies. So I, I filled in a lot of gaps in my education. Stephen, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what led you to your graduate studies and pursuing a law degree. Um, and specifically, what was it that interested you about the First Amendment? Was it the uh, year that you spent working as a press secretary? Um, was it that you just always had a keen interest in journalism and freedom of the press, a combination of both? Yeah, it was uh, my experience in journalism and my interest in it. Um, when I was in high school, actually, there was a high school newspaper, and I worked on it for one uh, semester uh, and was told I couldn't do it again because only students in the journalism program could do it. Uh, so I decided to start a literary magazine on campus, and the principal told me I couldn't distribute it. Uh, and so I got in touch with a new organization then called the Student Press Law Center in Washington. Uh, a guy named Chris Fager, and he later told me he had just gotten that job, the phone wasn't ringing, he was thinking, is this worth even having? Uh, but I, I got in touch with him and said, I've been told I can't distribute this literary magazine on campus. He said that's an obvious violation of the First Amendment. So he sent me a letter explaining all that. I took it to the school board, and the school board members read it and pondered it, and finally one of them said, you know, the Supreme Court knows what's right for New York City and for Washington, D.C., but they don't understand Texas. So they just ignored it. How did you feel? Uh, I was a little surprised, and more so once I got to law school and learned you're not really supposed to do that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was law unto themselves there. That is fascinating. I mean, that really is a story that I can understand might help pave the path for the road you ultimately went down. Um, just just having that personal experience of saying, this is the law, and then somebody turning around and saying, but, but we don't care. Uh, 
that had to have been a formative experience. Right, exactly. I uh, I wrote a book later about religious freedom, and I found the same thing in East Tennessee, where 30 years earlier, the Supreme Court said school prayer is unconstitutional, and they were still doing it. It probably took a lot of moxie to to contact somebody from uh, across the country, uh, an expert and things. That seems to be it seems to be something characteristic that you have the the moxie, being willing to to just not take no the first time and move forward and find a way to to uh, accomplish what you desire. Probably the high school was glad to see me go to Boston as well. <laughs> They probably felt you belonged there. They probably brag about you now. (laughs) (laughs) They they might. They might. Stephen, let's talk a little bit about what you've been doing recently. You just got back from a sabbatical where you were very productive. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you spent your time. Well, I published uh, a book about the Hutchins Commission a couple years ago, and so I uh, continued to do some spin-off articles and things related to that, as well as do some interviews and guest appearances in classes and things from that. Um, I ended up spending a lot of my sabbatical year in a town called Carpinteria, California, which my family had some connections to. And I uh, collaborated with a fellow there named Vince Burns on a book about a uh, part of Carpinteria called Rincon Point. It's in the Images of America series of old antique photo books. So that was, uh, that was very interesting and an opportunity to use a lot of family photos. I also worked on a monograph that's kind of a spin-off from my Hutchins Commission book about efforts to study the press between the 1920s and the 1950s that important journalists and publishers vetoed, where they said, we don't want you to study us. Uh, whether the U is uh, Sigma Delta Chi or Columbia School of Journalism, and they they essentially vetoed efforts to probe the uh, performance and behavior of journalism. Wow. So how did it come about that Henry Luce would then fund the Hutchins Commission when his peers were didn't want anything done like that? One of the, the four things I look at actually is Henry Luce. He went to Columbia uh, School of Journalism and wanted them to use time incorporated money to study public opinion about the press. And uh, Arthur Sulzberger vetoed it, the publisher of the New York Times. That doesn't surprise me. Right. So tell us about how you got into studying the Hutchins Commission. What was it that, that kind of opened that door? When I was uh, in college, I found some of their books. They published four or five books in used bookstores, and I thought it was sort of interesting, this um, analysis of journalism from the 1940s. And I got to thinking more and was interested in the process as well as in the outcome. This was a dozen intellectuals from different academic fields who spent a couple years collaborating together on a restatement of freedom of the press and responsibility of the press. Uh, And on the one hand, it's kind of, um, I think it's the leading collaborative effort of American journalists, certainly in the 20th century. But on the other hand, it's kind of ludicrous to think that that's a good way to go about philosophical analysis uh, by bringing together a room full of people. But they, they did pretty well. Right. And and tell us about the book that you ended up writing, and uh, tell us about that process of getting Yale University Press to publish it. 
Well, I, uh, I first looked at the Hutchins Commission when I was a fellow at the Annenberg Washington Program in the 1990s, which then was headed by Newton Minow, the former uh, chair of the FCC. And I sort of came back to it and poked at it periodically over about 25 years' time. Um, I ended up doing uh, extensive archival work. I think I had close to 100 archives that I consulted um, either by email or uh, in person. Uh, and I think I, I told a pretty comprehensive story. One of the challenges was not telling too comprehensive a story, not producing an 800-page book about what is actually a 100-page report of the Hutchins Commission. Uh, so I did a lot of pieces as kind of uh, a spin-off from that where I would go in greater depth into something like uh, Colonel McCormick, the publisher of the Chicago Tribune, and his reaction to it. Uh, but I sent it around to, uh, to different presses, and Yale was interested, and uh, I'm delighted I was able to connect with them. Uh, what surprised you about the process? I mean, this has been tw- 25 years. This is a significant amount of time that you've been thinking about this. But when you sat down to actually do it, what surprised you? Well, personally, I went back and forth between thinking uh, it was a kind of um, not just honorable but pathbreaking project on the part of the Hutchins Commission and thinking, who are these people? And, you know, a little bit audacious of them to restate freedom of the press for anybody, but also to think the way to do it was by bringing together 12 people in a room. Um, so I ended up thinking that it was uh, quite a worthwhile and, and somewhat noble endeavor. The, the report they produced, which is called A Free and Responsible Press, is good, but the transcripts of their deliberations, I think, are fascinating, seeing 12 of the great minds of the 20th century kind of duking it out and trying to figure things out, and in the process, doing it in good faith. They were having open, honest debates in which they sometimes changed their minds about policy issues, not about fundamental philosophical principles, but about their ideas. A lot of them went in thinking we needed to use a lot more antitrust law to break up giant media companies, and they ended up concluding that wasn't a great idea. Why is that? They realized that size sometimes helps media produce better journalism. It helps insulate media from boycott threats uh, and things like that. Uh, And to the extent they wanted to um, restore the kind of individual idiosyncratic voices of the 19th century, it took some size. It took a, a big media outlet. They didn't happen to like the voices that were dominating in the 40s. They didn't like... Uh, Colonel McCormick or William Randolph Hearst, but they had to admit these were people who had ideas that they clung to so fiercely they were willing to lose some money to get their ideology across. As you look at today, does that seem to be the case today? One of the things Henry Luce said uh, was the first obligation of the press is to make a profit and survive. Uh, That seems to be the biggest challenge to the press now. Um, One of the analytical approaches the Hutchins Commission came up was a distinction between what they called truth about the fact, meaning truth in context to make sense of it, and a common carrier, meaning kind of an open channel where anybody can say anything. At the time, they were worried that there wasn't enough common carrier, that a lot of people couldn't get their voices heard. Um, 
to the extent there's a problem now, it's probably the opposite, that the common carrier is a bit too common, that it's too easy for people to get their voices heard. If they were here now, I'm, I'm pretty sure they would be worried about that. Um, they didn't want to eliminate gatekeepers. They just wanted better, more open-minded gatekeepers. That's great. Stephen, talk to us a little bit about what you teach. And uh, I mean, we know what you teach, but let's say to somebody who's listening to this who maybe hasn't taken any of your classes, what can they expect? The principal class I teach is the First Amendment law class, uh, media law for students in our program, journalism students. It is principally about journalism, although I touch on IMC and advertising regulation. Um, it's... Uh, I've, I've tried different ways of, of teaching it and ended up with a kind of combination of lecture and discussion that seems to work well. Uh, there was a time when I tried calling on students cold, uh, as, as was done to me in law school, and they didn't appreciate that very much. <laughs> um, it's a bit of a challenge to explain complex concepts that take three years of law school in one semester. And it's a bit of a challenge to keep up with um, uh, some classes, some subject matter doesn't change much. Um, the law does. The Supreme Court does uh, hands down new decisions. There are a couple justices now who think they should the, the court should rethink libel law and make it easier for plaintiffs to win. So it does uh, require keeping up with events. Well, and you are in the unique position of having uh, worked with some of the members of the Supreme Court, or at least one of the members of the Supreme Court. And, and recently, Ken Starr passed away. Tell us about that experience working on the Starr, uh, the Starr Report. In, um, I think, about 1996, the think tank where I was working, the Annenberg-Washington program, was closing down. I had spoken as a guest speaker before a class of Ken Starr's that he was teaching at NYU uh, at the time. And he had me back to his class, and I spoke, and I told him I was my think tank was closing. And he said he thought maybe they could use me for a couple months, and I ended up staying for, I think, four years, uh, including through the Lewinsky business. I was part-time for a lot of it and, um, in fact, was working at the Wilson Quarterly for the last part of it as, uh, as book editor there. But I did. I, uh, my office for a while was between Brett Kavanaugh and Rod Rosenstein. Well, you know, we often talk about what's key in a career are mentors. What me who were your mentors? Well, um, Ken Starr was very gracious and generous with everyone uh, who worked with him and uh, tried to nurture people and help them out. But I guess for mentors, I'd have to go back to college. There were uh, two particular people, a, uh, a political scientist whom I studied with named Abigail Thernstrom, who later connected me, she was kind of a journalist as well, to New Republic and places like that, uh, and to uh, foundations and to literary agents. Uh, was a great help to me. The other was an MIT professor named Edwin Diamond, who was a former journalist, uh, senior editor of Newsweek. And he, he and I hit it off, and we collaborated when I was an undergrad on some articles for, for uh, TV Guide, uh, and then later collaborated on a book together called The Spot, which is a history of political advertising. You know, you were in the middle of everything going on there in Washington. Why go back in? Why why go into academia? I mean, you had, you were. You know, it's kind of like uh, a journalist who's in the 
action in the newsroom, but you were in the action of the political realm where things were happening, where being in the know was important. And then all of a sudden, all the way to University of Nevada, Las Vegas, what was it that, that uh, you know, caused you to make that, that change? And it's a big change. Well, I left the Star office in 1999 and kind of returned to writing and journalism as a literary editor of the Wilson Quarterly. And I was, I was doing that. Uh, and in 2006, the UNLV opening came along, and uh, I applied for that, thinking um, that as I was approaching 50 that I probably should have gone into academia long before. That, that would be a good match for me. And I was, uh, I was uh, delighted to get the position. As it happened, the Wilson Quarterly closed a few years later, so I feel like I got the last chopper out. Stephen, what's next for you? You've been, as we talked about, very productive over your sabbatical, but you're a full professor and you can kind of set your own agenda. What are you looking at doing? I'm interested in uh, expanding on uh, some of the research I did on the Hutchins Commission, looking at a a figure from the 1950s who was, uh, to a substantial extent, the brains behind Joe McCarthy and whose story has not fully been told. Um, his name was J.B. Matthews. His wife was actually the junior researcher on the Hutchins Commission, which is how I uh, came across him. He uh, was sort of the, the file master of the, the Red Baiters. Um, he had immense files on everybody showing um, if they appeared on uh, the masthead of a communist newspaper or the letterhead of a communist front, he had documents on it. One thing that's appealing about doing uh, something about him is his papers ended up at Duke, so there are incredible archives there. And I was in touch uh, with his family, with his son, who gave me access to a lot of personal papers, including the papers of, uh, of his wife, Ruth Inglis, uh, which included her diaries and appointment books and all sorts of things, including uh, that she was going to uh, the New York Public Library to uh, research and try to find dirt on different uh, publishers and uh, people on television and, and things like that. So uh, that's sort of appealing. Yeah, that sounds like a rich archive. It is. I think there's, uh, there's an interesting story to be told there, including about, uh, about McCarthy's kind of recklessness and reliance on other people to give him facts. Mm. So I think I have the uh, uh, question I'd like to close out with, Kevin, and it goes back to when you made it to Cambridge and were fortunate enough to see five movies a week. That's amazing. <laughs> Which... Which of these movies maybe made a lasting impact on you, or what kind of stands out as, I'm so glad that I saw this, and you remember it to this day? I took a class on film history, and the first semester was a little slow until the talkies came in. But it got pretty good then, and I was introduced to a lot of films I would never have seen. Chinatown was one of them. Um, there were guest speakers who would come to Harvard uh, Vicente Minnelli uh, came and talked about uh, films that he had directed. Um, John Lithgow came, who uh, was a Harvard graduate who had just done a film. So there were just all sorts of opportunities uh, in that direction. I took a screenwriting class from the man who uh, wrote Bullet and the Thomas Crown Affair, the, the original ones. So uh, I was interested in that world as well as the journalism world. Fascinating. Well, is there anything we haven't asked you that we you know, to get to know you better or something about you and your, your, uh, your story that, uh, that 
you think might be valuable for our audience to hear? You know, especially potential students or others who might uh, run across your bio and think, I may want to take his class. Well, I think it's a fascinating time to study journalism and certainly to go into journalism. There are a lot of new challenges, financial uh, included, but there are also a lot of new opportunities and places to get one's uh, writing out there. So it's just a fascinating time to uh, study it. And it's a fascinating time, I think, to study the First Amendment as well as it tries to accommodate the changes uh, in media technology and the ways in which people can now get their voice heard across the country, around the world, without being a member of the press. Well, Stephen, thanks. Thanks. We so appreciate your time. We do. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you.